0: You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Start!
1: You can call me Bruce.
0: Bruce Nolan is standing by. Hey, Wacky Bruce! Coming to you from an undisclosed location... This is the Bruce Exclusive, and here's your host, Bruce Nolan. Right.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to the Bruce Exclusive. My name is Bruce Nolan, I'm your host. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. And we're back for this special Episode, I call it a special episode because they're all special to me. They're all unique and special snowflakes. Neither one of my episodes on Thursday and Fridays, they're never exactly alike. There's something a little special in each one of them. They're made with love. Ladies and gentlemen, they're made with love from me to you. And I hope that comes out in the discussion. So we're going to continue on with our series that we've been doing on things that I believe are football myths. We talked about how running and stopping the run doesn't correlate with winning as much as passing and stopping the pass. And we had some good discussions on that. We talked about some of your football myths with our almighty takes last week. And today, we're going to tackle this myth, which is... You run to set up the pass. I think that's a myth. And I'm going to attack it from three specific logical angles today. The first part that we're going to dive right into is, what do you mean by running to set up the pass? And no matter what direction you come at me with that statement, I've got something ready for you. What if the first part was, well you need to set up play action. I really hope that we're getting to the point where we don't have to have this discussion anymore, but we're not there yet. So we're going to have it again. And that is the correlation between play action effectiveness and rushing effectiveness is not what you think it is. The idea that you have to have a significant, powerful, Effective running game to succeed in the play-action game is just not true. So let's establish some of those things. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you through the top 10 most effective play-action passers in the NFL last year. And the way I am defining effectiveness is a amalgamation of a quarterback's Completion percentage on play action pay plays, their passer rating on play action plays, and their adjusted yards per attempt on play action plays. We're going to take those three things together, average them out, and then that's going to determine how effective that person is. So the number one most effective quarterback on play action passes by that metric was Ryan Tannehill in 2019. Right away, it's off to a strong start for the people who believe that rushing effectiveness is a direct correlation with play action, passing effectiveness. Well, goodness gracious, Ryan Tannehill had Derek Henry. Yeah, you're right. And if this was the only data point, then I would agree with you. Ryan Tannehill was number one and the Titans were number two in the NFL in yards per attempt at 5.0. We're off to a good start. Number two, Is Drew Brees. The Saints were not as effective running the ball. The New Orleans Saints were 19th in the NFL at 4.3 yards per attempt, but Drew Brees was the second most effective play action passer. The third most effective play action passer in 2019 was Gardner Minshew. The Jacksonville Jaguars were 15th in the league in yards per attempt, rushing the ball at 4.4. The fourth most effective play-action passer was Russell Wilson. The Seattle Seahawks were ninth. Okay, so there's a pretty decent top 10 rushing offense. Ninth in the NFL at 4.6 yards per carry. Kirk Cousins was fifth in the NFL as far as most effective play-action passer. The Minnesota Vikings were 11th. In the NFL in rushing. The sixth most effective play action passer was Jameis Winston. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers were 27th in the league in rushing. Very, very significant difference. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers were not a good rushing team last year. 3.7 yards per carry is really bad. In fact, you can make an argument that's tied for third worst in the league because the Steelers, the Bears, the Rams, the Buccaneers all tied for 3.7 yards per attempt as a team last year. But it didn't stop Jameis Winston from being effective. Number seven on the list of the most effective play-action passers in 2019 was Phillip Rivers at the time for the Los Angeles Chargers. The Los Angeles Chargers were 23rd in the league in yards per attempt at 4.0 yards per carry. Derek Carr was number eight. He was the eighth person on the list. And the Oakland Raiders were the 18th, again below average, when it comes to rushing the ball. But he was still an 8th most effective play-action passer. Number 9 was Jimmy Garoppolo. And we all know that the San Francisco 49ers were an effective rushing team. 8th in the NFL at 4.6 yards per carry. Number 10 is Lamar Jackson. And the Ravens were number 1. So... This data set is all over the place, folks, all over the place. Number one, number two, number eight, number nine, number 11, number 15, number 18, number 19, number 23, number 27, all over the place as far as rushing offenses when you try and match those up with the effective play action quarterbacks. No correlation there. It's completely spread out. The top 10 most effective play action passers are spread out all over the place as far as rushing offenses ranked goes. So that's not it. Let's try the second argument. The second argument is, well, hold on, Bruce. We need the rushing attempts. Because if you attempt a lot more rushes, then the linebackers and the second level that you're trying to hold with play action passing they'll respond more to it if you do it more often. It'll become more effective as you run the ball. Also not true. So, Ben Baldwin of The Athletic did a piece where he took the difference between each team's yards per pass on play action and their yards per pass on regular dropbacks. And then he related it with total rushes, rushing attempts, and rushing success rate. Each one of those three Categories, rushes, rushing attempts, so this is not the same thing, and rushing success rate. So success rate is different depending on who you're asking. But typically on third and fourth down, a successful rushing play means you got the first down because that's the goal. On first down, depending on who you're talking to and the metric they're using, a successful rush is typically something that is above average. So specifically, a lot of people use a five yards per attempt sort of metric, on first down as being a successful rushing play. But the point is that none of those things impact the effectiveness of play action. Play action is going to be as effective as it's going to be regardless of how many rushing attempts you had previously that game, regardless of how successful your rushing attack was, and regardless of how many total rushing attempts you had. So whether your rushes are a higher percentage of your play calls, or whether you want to use raw rushing attempts, or whether or not you want to use rushing success rate. No matter how you slice it, the amount of times you ran the ball, or how many first downs you picked up running the ball, does not impact the effectiveness of play action. Play action is going to be effective regardless of how good your team is at running the ball, how good they are historically, how good they were over the course of the year, how good they have been that game, doesn't matter. Play action is going to be as effective as it's going to be regardless. Now, you would think that doesn't make sense. Intuitively, it doesn't make sense. Bruce, I don't understand why the impact of play action is not impacted by the effectiveness of your running game. Isn't the idea that you're getting them to bite on the play-action fake? Well, yeah, but biting means different things. You are taught as a linebacker from a very early age to confirm ball placement before making your move. This is one of the benefits of the read option. It puts defenders, specifically linebackers and defensive linemen, in a binary situation where they're always going to make the wrong call. Zone read does this, RPO does this, play action does this to a limited extent. The idea being that it doesn't matter if you're running the ball effectively. The linebacker, whoever's biting on the play action, still has to confirm that the ball is in the quarterback's hands before they drop back. It's just a mental processing thing. It doesn't matter if they were very effective. They're still going to do it. Because that's what you were trained to do as a linebacker or as a defensive lineman or as a a zone corner, whatever the position is that's biting on the play action. Since you were five years old and you were playing peewee football, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to go through the third possible angle that you could come at me with and say, Bruce, no, you're wrong. You have to run to set up the pass. You totally do. Well, stick around. We'll be right back.
0: You can find it on the Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Welcome back, everybody, and thank you for joining me for this edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. And we have been talking about what I think is a myth, which is the phrase, run to set up the pass. So we talked about what we meant by that. The first thing was, well... Running effectiveness is going to increase play action effectiveness. Maybe that's what you meant by run to set up the pass. We established that's not true. The second thing is, well, maybe it's not really run effectiveness. Maybe it's run attempts. It's making them think something's coming because they've seen it before in that game or they've seen it on tape. And turns out that's not true either. Well, let's try a third angle. What about passing attempts following runs? This is the most literal definition of the phrase "run to set up the pass." Is if you run first to get you in manageable down and distances, then you can open up the playbook and you're not one-dimensional. That's something you hear a lot. You're going to run to set up the pass. Okay. Well, funny story about this. The Signal Blog. Brandon Skurda did a piece over at the Signal blog where he specifically went through some of these things. And he said, okay, well, let's establish what we mean by passing attempts after a good run because you have to define good run. So if a run is good, then by this definition, good means that a five yards or more run is good because the average run in the past 16 years was 4.19 yards. So anything that goes five or more yards, we're going to consider that a good run. Anything that goes less than four yards, we're going to consider that a bad run. So we're going to use nice, easy tools. And out of the 16 years of data that were graphed, 2000 to 2016, 2016, Pass plays following a good run had almost no impact versus pass plays following a bad run. There was a point three six yards per pass difference over the course of 16 years between the two of them. That's basically margin of error difference. yards per pass after quote-unquote bad runs. 6.19 yards per pass after quote-unquote good runs. That is an extremely minute difference. So that's not it either. The quality of the run play that you just had does not impact the subsequent pass play almost at all. So... Yeah, there's a little difference there, but it's so small that it's almost not even worth mentioning. There are over 120,000 plays graft to do this. Plays that are sequenced with a run and then a pass over and over and over again. So, over the course of a game... That might see 350 yards of offense. The difference between 5.83 yards per pass and 6.19 yards per pass, which is the difference between a pass after a bad run and a pass after a good run, is about 8%. Which, if you got 350 yards in a game, that'd be 38 yards. So, that's not overly positive the run quality's impact on the subsequent pass is not high. So you can't come at me with play action effectiveness and correlating with rushing effectiveness because we've established that's all over the place. We've had research done that indicated that rushing attempts and percentage of your plays that are rushes and rushing success rate if you don't like yards per attempt, that doesn't have a relation to passing effectiveness. And... You can't say you use the run to set up the pass by making sure that you're running the ball well so that you can pass it better on a subsequent play. The phrase run to set up the pass basically means nothing. There, is, there isn't a single way that I can frame that run to set up the pass that would end up being something that I could actually quantify as being valuable. So that phrase, we're going to run to set up the pass, doesn't really have a lot of value. It's an old adage that people use and old school football coaches use, but it's not actually true. It's not verifiably scientific. You can't go and find proof of this anywhere. And if you can't find proof of it, but there's no way to measure it, then that's a different story. That's a thing like culture. I believe culture is a real thing. The problem is you can't measure it. It's not measurable. This stuff is measurable. You can measure it. So if you can, then we should. If you can't measure it, then you might just have to use anecdotal evidence, which is what we have to do for things like culture. But if you have the ability to measure it, then you should to verify it. And we've attempted to verify it from three different angles. And every time we tried, we came up short because it's a myth. Running the ball to set up the pass is a myth. If you don't think it's a myth, talk to me. Come talk to me. The last couple of weeks of this podcast have been strong opinions from me. And one of the reasons why I wanted to do the almighty takes, which we're going to do tomorrow, and I'm going to get into the topic for next week right now. But one of the reasons I wanted to do that is because I'm not someone who equates strong opinions with arrogance. Just because you have strong opinions doesn't mean you're arrogant. The method in which you deliver them and how well you know a person when you hear the hot takes or the strong opinions being delivered has a direct correlation with how you feel about whether or not that person is arrogant. And I want you guys to know me a little better so that when you hear these strong opinions, you don't think, gosh, that guy's a jerk I have strong opinions and I think that's good. I think it's good to have stances that are backed by things that are verifiable. But I don't want to be a jerk about it. I just have a strong opinion. So, this upcoming week for the Almighty Take, it's very important that you hit me with one because tomorrow we're going to do your Almighty Food Takes. And that's really, really good. I love doing food takes. If you follow me on Instagram, follow me on Instagram, by the way. If you don't follow me on Instagram, mostly it's just food. I'm a huge food guy. My wife is a great cook. She's an unbelievable baker. I'm very lucky to have her for so many reasons. That's one of them. And it is something that I'm passionate about. So I'm going to enjoy talking about that with you tomorrow. But next week, hit me with your almighty take. Hashtag almighty take. Find me on Twitter. Follow me. Tweet at me with a hashtag almighty take so I can find it. Give me your almightyest take, the best hashtag almighty take you have regarding this Bill's training camp. It could be a camp competition. It could be somebody beating somebody out for a job. It could be a personnel move you think is going to happen. It could be someone you think is going to get cut. A training camp almighty take. Hit me with that for next week's episode of The Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining me for this edition of the Bruce Exclusive. And as always, that's the way the cookie crumbles. I'm Bruce Nolan, Buffalo Rumble.